Thank you. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all. I'd like us actually just to take a moment. I think there's been a number of words, haven't there, this morning, and we don't want to miss what God is saying. So let's actually just take a moment to be still and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, I love the fact that you've been speaking this morning about inside out. And I love the fact that we've been singing so much about your love for us. And I thank you, Lord, that you do love us inside out and outside in with all that's going on with us. Whatever we present with, you're there and you are here now. And we just say, yes, Lord, take us and thank you that you receive us just as we are. We're not complete yet. We haven't got everything worked out. But you are working in us and through us. And you have called each one of us by name. And you know us. And we just say thank you for that. And Lord, as I'm praying, I'm just going to pray, Lord, that we're looking at a very familiar passage today. It's a story that so many of us have read for many years. We know it. But I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring revelation to us this morning. That you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, and open our spirits. That we will hear what you want to say to us today. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And your word does penetrate into our heart. And your word does bring change and transformation. And you are at work within us. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the book of Daniel. A wonderful book. And yes, today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. But let's just give ourselves a little reminder of uh, what's been happening so far that we've been looking at. We've got this big King Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a lovely long name, hasn't he? We've heard what a powerful man he is. He's, at that time, he was the most powerful man in the world. And he lived in this fantastic, magnificent city of Babylon. And he ruled over a huge empire. In amongst all that, we've got Daniel and his three friends. We've got Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I've no idea if I've pronounced those right. Um, But I just thought out of a point of interest, a couple of weeks ago, Bev was sharing with us that Daniel means God is my judge. Did you know that Hananiah means God is gracious? And Mishael means who is like God? And Azariah is God has helped. Now, these four people, they were part of a larger contingent of the Jewish population who'd been captured and brought to Babylon. So they're living in Babylon in exile. And interestingly enough, they were given new names. And what I find most interesting about that is the fact that when I tried to find out the meanings of their new names, 
I could find no meanings. And maybe my search wasn't deep enough, but there were no meanings for the, the new names they were given. So think about that. Think about how that feels for identity. What impact would that have on those young guys? So they're living in exile there, but do you know what? Those Jewish guys, they were men of integrity. And they decided and purposed in their mind and decided in their hearts that they were not going to defile themselves, but they were going to stay true to the living God and holding on to their true identities despite the fact that the king was trying to impose his rule and his culture on them. And in the last chapter, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar got in a right turmoil. He had a dream, and this dream disturbed him. And instead of telling his dream to anybody and saying, can you give me the interpretation, he said, I want the wise men in my empire to interpret, tell me what the dream is, and also interpret it. And they're like, you what? We can't do that. How the heck are we going to do that if you don't tell us what the dream is? And so he said, okay, you're no good. I'm going to kill you all. And he had the power to do that, to kill them all, get rid of them. But Daniel said, hang on a minute, because Daniel and his friends, they were part of those wise men that would have been killed. And he said, hang on a moment. King, give us a bit of time. And Daniel and his friends, they went away and they prayed. And when they prayed... God gave them revelation. God showed them what the dream was and gave the interpretation of the dream. So they went back to the king and they shared with the king, this is what you dreamt and this is what it means. So the king, he said, wow, there's this amazing God. Oh my goodness, can this God really do that? And he was in awe. He was in awe of the fact that they were able to give that interpretation. And through the dream, the king's reminded of his status, of the authority that he had to be an influence over many. He's also shown that, though, that there's going to be other kingdoms coming and that there will be division. And I think that upsets him a bit. And so at the end of chapter 2, what we find is that we see that Daniel, he's been lavished with gifts and he's promoted to a high office within the king's court. And his friends are given, also given positions of authority, but their positions were out in the country, uh, country districts of the province somewhere. And it just makes you wonder, maybe because Daniel was in the king's court and his friends were out in a different district, Is that why when we come to chapter 3, it is the only chapter in Daniel that Daniel doesn't feature? So let's listen to chapter 3 now, and Pat's going to come and read it to us. King Nebuchadnezzar had made a golden statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. 
So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring that all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what god will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadnach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the burning furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly... Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, 
didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, said Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Amen. Lovely. Thanks, Pat. So, you familiar with that story? One you've heard before? wonder which bit of it stirred you this morning. Was there one bit, one word, one action within that that you thought, ooh, that's touching me? Tune into it. Tune into what the Holy Spirit is pointing out for you. Now, many commentators um, actually see this chapter more as a kind of allegory rather than a historical event. How do you see it? Do you think it could have actually happened? Yes? Good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And there actually, there is quite a lot of evidence has been gathered that actually uh, establishes that there's realism in its features. So it could have happened. And in fact, there is nothing improbable about any of the story until you get to the miraculous in intervention. So let's have a look at some of the things that are in that story. We've got the statue. Now, it was quite common for Assyrian kings to erect statues of themselves. And here we have this big golden statue way up into the air. It wasn't that wide, was it? Nine feet, but 90 feet high. What's that? Three times the height of this room? Something like that. You know, that's tall. It's going to be more like an obelisk, isn't it? But it's going to stand out. It's, it's just out, it's outside the city in the plains, in the grounds outside the city, but people are going to see it. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, I remember when the Angel of the North was first erected. And actually, as you drive up, uh, is it the M1 and you pass it? Hmm? A1, A1, there you go. And you pass it, and it stands out, doesn't it? 
But this statue would have been even more obvious. And then, um, I wonder, what do you think was in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart? Why, why did he erect this statue? Okay, on the one hand, it's quite common. But we don't, to, you know, as I said, the kings often did make statues of themselves. But this wasn't necessarily of King Nebuchadnezzar. It could have been symbolizing his gods. But what he did want it for, he wanted it very much to be worshipped. But he also wanted it to bring unity. He'd been disturbed by that dream and about disunity, and he wanted unity. So he actually wanted this statue to draw all people, whatever their religion, he wanted to draw them in. And it's like, come on, let's all be together. You know, I, I'm head over this empire. Let's all gather together. Let's, you know, whoever you are, let's all come together. Let's be of one mind together. And so I think he really wanted to assert his authority but he did want to see that unity across his kingdom. Uh, he wanted to make everybody within his kingdom feel like they belonged. But I think there's also that power struggle going on that he wanted them to do what he wanted them to do. Um, and even though he'd, if we think about how when he'd heard the dream interpreted, he had heard what an amazing God the God of Israel was he'd heard it but here he is he's trying to do things in his own strength isn't he you know suddenly where, where he'd got a bit closer to God understanding God he's now withdrawn and he's gone back to doing things in his own strength and the way that he knows how to do them so there's a bit of a power struggle going on there uh, spiritual struggle going on. And then we've got this amazing festival. And, you know, it's going to be this big event. They're dedicating this statue. And basically anybody who's anybody in the land is invited. So, you know, it'd be a real honor, wouldn't it? be an honor to be invited to such a prestigious event. You're thinking, wow, somebody's invited me. But we've got that long list of all the officials, the judges, the magistrates, all of them, they were all invited to this big event. Now that meant that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were invited too. I wonder how we would feel if we were invited, for example, maybe to Buckingham Palace, you'd think, wow, being invited there. But how would you feel if the Queen had erected a statue and within that she wanted us all to bow down and worship the statue? I mean, praise God, our Queen is not like that. She is a good Christian lady. She worships God. But what if she didn't? How would you feel if you got that invite? So sometimes when you read this story, you think of those three men and you think, okay, they didn't, you know, they didn't get burned. They didn't even smell of smoke. They, they were rescued. So, you know, 
actually, did they struggle? By heck, I think they did. They'd got that invite. And then they'd think, okay, can we avoid this? Is there a way of not being there? There'll be so many crowds there. Maybe it'd be okay just to be there, and then when the music starts, we'll disappear. I don't know, maybe they had long discussions with their family and their friends. Do you think people put pressure on them? Saying, you know, just go along, just don't bow down. Or go along, don't stand out. It's too dangerous to stand out because if you stand out, you're going to be put in the fire. Don't stand out, just go along. You can bow down physically and we'll know that you don't mean it in your heart. Do you think there would have been those sorts of discussions going on, those sorts of thoughts? I think they would have agonized over it. But do you know what? I can, it doesn't actually say it. But I can, by looking at the previous chapters, one thing we can be guaranteed of is that they prayed. They came together and they prayed. And we've seen already in chapters 1 and 2 the difference that it made because they went to seek the Lord, didn't they? And they prayed as to what they were going to do. And for me, I'm always reminded about the power of praying together. There's such strength in that, isn't there? Such strength when we can stand together and seek the Lord. So we know that King Nebuchadnezzar, he said that if you don't bow, simple fact, you'll be thrown into the fire. Now, that might seem a bit far-fetched to us, but actually it's not. It's part of the punishment that they used to use in those days. And they had the fires there because they used them to make bricks. And so they had to have fires that could get really hot so they could make the bricks. Um, and just, just a little note here that when you read the chapter, there's a repetition of the list of officials and also the instruments, that actually creates rather a satirical effect. Here are all the great ones of an empire falling on their faces before a lifeless obelisk at the sound of music. (laughs) And you just think, you know what? What are you doing? Did people even think what they were doing? Have we ever been in situations where the music's playing and we get taken along with the music and we think, oh, this music's nice? And then you listen to the words and you think, hang on a moment, what the heck am I doing? Is this what I want to be caught up in? But then that's the power of music, isn't it? The melody of music. It can draw us in. So I'm not surprised the king had music in this ceremony. And in verse 7, it says, all people bowed down. So I think the king thought he'd achieved the unity that he sought. But that's what he thought, isn't it? Now, the king would be none the wiser, would he? But there had to be somebody who said, oh, look, those three aren't bowing down. Oh, look, they're not doing what the Lord wants. I wonder who those people were. 
I wonder how those people felt, the ones that went to the king and said, you've got some people who aren't obeying you. I wonder if they were people who thought, oh, look, these foreigners who came into our land, they've been given positions of authority. Were they jealous? Did they not like it? And actually, if we look at the words that they actually say to the king, where is it? Um, Because I'm not following my notes. Bit by bit. Thank you. Yeah, I've got too many bits of paper up here. (laughs) Um, Basically, they said, they don't listen to you. And the king, that actually wasn't true, was it? Because they were men of integrity and they did do what the king asked. But I think the fact that they say they don't listen to you They're implying, oh, they mention as well, don't they? They mention that they're Jews, so they're implying you're a foreigner. These people are foreigners, so they won't be loyal. You know, they're not one of us, so they're not going to be loyal. And then there's that whole implication of, you know, they're not bowing down to you. Um, But I I think underneath there's some sort of jealousy going on. They don't like it because these foreigners have got these positions of authority. And then, so, you've got the people who have told on them. And one thing that is really nice is that King Nebuchadnezzar didn't just hear the accusation. And I wonder whether he thought, hang on, these are good guys. Can this really be true? Would they really be that disobedient? So he says, says to them, come here, come and meet me. And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they go before the king. Now, those three men would think, okay, this is it. This is the confrontation with the king that actually we would have liked to have avoided if we could. But now we've actually been summoned into his presence. We're going to have to not just act, but we're going to have to speak. I bet they said more than one or two prayers to the Lord, saying, Lord, give us the words to say. But I love the fact that the king called them, and he was checking it out, and he says, is this true? Is it true that you won't bow down? And what did they do? Verse 16. They don't even try to defend themselves. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. If you don't know where Jesus is in the story, he's right there. When Jesus was before his accusers, he never said a word. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't try to defend themselves at all. And I love the fact, in verse 17, it says, they don't doubt God can save them, but they also don't presume he will. They knew God. Again, they talk about, they said, our God. He was a personal God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know this. I mean, he'd heard about it from Daniel. He'd heard about this personal God. But he hadn't hadn't got there in his own life, had he? He hadn't got to that point where he could say, 
He's got that living relationship with the God. But these guys are demonstrating that they've got this living relationship with their God and that their God is for them. And they knew from when they were growing up that nothing was impossible for God. They knew that God could rescue them, but they weren't going to say he definitely would. But they trusted him, and they were prepared to lay down their lives because they were not going to worship the golden statue. And their answer under such a fierce and determined threat, it must have taken superb courage, and it was given with such amazing dignity. And I think it illustrates somehow how when you're faithful and loyal behavior, if we have a pattern of that in our lives, if with the small things of life we make good decisions, and we're faithful to God in the small things, when we're faced with such a big ask, we can trust God. Because we've grown, haven't we? And like some of the words that were shared earlier, we're so quick to judge ourselves. We say, oh, you know, royal priesthood, oh, can I really be part of that? You know, we're, we're so quick to think, no, I'm not good enough. But actually, it's as we're faithful with the little things, by being faithful in turning to God over all the small things, including God in our small decisions, that when we're faced with a huge big thing, like facing the king and having to resist him, then God is with us then. And he really helps us in those situations. And do you know what? There are few sentences... (laughs) in witness to God, that they did speak so wonderfully. What an impact that had. That had more impact on the king than if they'd each preached a sermon. So they're silence. They're not defending themselves. Really got to King Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) You know, these people weren't even trying to save their lives. They were completely trusting in their God. Whoa, that was hard for the king. He could not get that. And what was his response to it? Absolute fury. And he's so furious that he wants that fire hotter than it's ever been before. It says seven times. It could have been seven times, but it could have been 70 times. Who knows? But we know that it was extremely hot. And then... The king is so angry and he gets some of his best men from his army to put these guys in the furnace and the guys that were meant to be the victims didn't end up being the victims, did they? Because it was the ones that he'd chosen to bind them up. It was his own people that ended up getting killed. Not these Jewish foreigners who trusted their God. And then when they're in the fire, it's wonderful. It's the king that is looking in the fire. There must have been one of these little windows that you can see into the furnace. And not only does he see them unbound and free and able to walk around, but there's somebody else in there with them. And he's like, gosh, 
that fourth person looks like they could even be a son of a god. Somehow this king was open to the supernatural. He's confronted with it. He sees it. He's the one that sees that extra person who was in the fire with them. So he's, he's being challenged, isn't he? He's being challenged. So in the previous chapter, he's heard about this amazing God. And then in this chapter, he's seeing something before his eyes and he cannot deny it. And so, of course, he calls them out. He calls them out. All the officials gather around and they think, oh, my goodness, look at you. Not even a hair on your head is singed. And I don't know about you, but... Uh, even just lighting the cooker sometimes, it's easy to singe your hair or something, isn't it? You know? And they've been in a furnace. <laughs> Only, on your hands. Only on your hands. There you go. <laughs> uh, you know, but they'd been in this furnace. They didn't even smell of smoke. So there's these three ordinary men of God. They weren't extraordinary. God just used them. But they spread the name of the Lord across the whole Babylonian empire. But I wonder, even though Nebuchadnezzar gave a decree, have you seen the words that he says in his decree? You know, he's telling people to honor the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. But what does he say? He says, if any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. That's not really the sort of kingdom of God that we know, is it? So, yes, he's still using his own strength and his own power, even though he's saying, you must not speak against this God. And I just think, yeah, okay, where was his heart? He's made this decree, but I'm not sure he's yet had that whole heart change. So, as we've looked at that, I want to read to you. No, I want to ask you a few questions. We don't have a gold statue, but what have you got in your life? Have you got things in your life that could be an idol? Have you got something in your life that you could worship? Now, the problem for us sometimes is that we think of idols as being bad things. But actually, they could be good things, but they could still be getting in the way of God being first in our lives. And I think Tim Keller says it nicely, so I'm going to read from what he says. The human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts defy them as the center of our lives, because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Thus, anything can be an idol, really. Everything has been an idol to one person or another. And the great deception of idols is we are prone to think that idols are only bad things. 
But evil is far more subtle than this. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. So what then is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. If anything in all the world is more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, then that has become an idol. It has supplanted God in your heart and in your affections, and you will pursue that thing with an abandon and intensity that should be reserved for God alone. And I was listening to Tim Keller talking about this on YouTube, and I love the fact that he says his wife's his idol. And one day after church, they're on their way home from church, and he's asking her, so how do you find the service? And actually, he was really asking her, how was my preaching? And she just looked at him, because she knows all about these idols, things and she said don't put that on me she said you did it before the lord not before me and i thought whoa that's a challenge isn't it where's our idols what is it that comes between us and the lord but i also want you to think where would you have been in that story would you have been One of the people who told on the guys? Would you have been one of their friends praying for them and hoping that it never came to them going into the fire? Not really, you know, being really worried for the safety of your friends? Are you a bit like King Nebuchadnezzar sometimes with those challenges in your heart? Not quite sure what's going on here. I'll do it my way. Or... I think I was thinking about this and I was thinking, where would I be? And I thought, knowing me, I'd probably just be in the crowd and I'd admire those guys for what they did. But would I have had the courage to stand up? No, I'd probably pray for them and say, Lord, they're fantastic, wonderful, bless them. But I'd rather just be in the crowd and not be noticed. I have a few things for us to think about, and I want us to take a bit of time, if that's all right, Nigel. Um, wiggle. Already? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Right. All right. Just take a moment and just think. What has God touched in my heart this morning as I've been sitting here? Is there anything that I need to let go of? Have I, am I currently feeling like I'm in a fire and I'm feeling pressured to conform because of other people? And it made me wonder... Is it hard for some of us if we're the only Christians in our family or in our peer group, if we're the only Christians 
in our classrooms. Is that a challenge? Is that hard? Do you find you have to conform to other people? Do you want prayer for those things so that you can stand? Is there something that's coming in your life that you know you will have to take a stand for and that's hard? And the whole idea of a fire, sometimes we need a bit of fire in our lives to get rid of the rubbish. Sometimes we need to be pressured so that we make good decisions. And the wonderful thing about the illustration of the four people in the fire is what a fantastic illustration that is of the fact that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Even in the fire, he was there. He was with them. So I was going to get you into groups to share. But you share with God. You share with one another. And let me pray for you now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God of the impossible. We thank you that you can bring us through all sorts of situations, and I know that so well. And I know that that happens through the power of prayer. But I pray for each and every one here. I pray, Lord, that whatever you have been pressing on their hearts, on their spirits, in their minds, whatever you are highlighting in their lives right now, from this story, Lord, I pray that they will take time. They will take time with you to think on it, to process it, to bring it to you. And I pray that each person here who needs prayer for a difficult situation, that they will ask for it. And that we will be able to stand with one another. And so, Lord, I ask that you will bless and continue your wonderful work amongst us because you are moving amongst us, and I thank you for that. And so, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Amen.